The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. All right, this morning we're going to be back in 1 John, continuing our study of this little but, to me, very challenging book. We finished last time looking at uh, chapter 3 and verse 10a. And if you remember, I said that's a, not a good place for a division of verses because the first half of the verse goes with what precedes it and the second half goes with what follows. And so next week I plan on picking up our study at 310b and going through that, but today I just want to look at verse 12 and uh, and talk about the serpent seed doctrine. How many of you are familiar with that? How many of you know what the serpent seed doctrine is? You heard it? One hand. That's it? One person? Okay. Well, you're going to know when you leave here today what it is. All right? <laughs> verse 12 says this. We already, we just read it, but First John first, uh, 3.12 says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, it says here that Cain, who was of the evil one. Now, those who hold to the serpent seed doctrine will take this verse and they'll say, see, Cain was fathered by Satan. And that's what, they, that's what they would explain the meaning here. Who was of the devil? In other words, he was born of the devil is their whole idea here. And uh, I don't think that's what this verse is talking about, but this is one of the verses they will use. And that's why I wanted to take this morning to just talk about this doctrine before we later get into the verse. Now, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible has this comment on... Uh, Verse 12, it says, Jewish tradition extensively elaborated and underlined Cain's sinfulness. Belonged to the evil one. A murderer was a child of the devil, for one of the devil's first works had been to bring death to Adam. Now, I want to draw your attention just to the last sentence here. It says, some later Jewish texts even claim that Cain's father was the devil himself. All right? Now, let me try to summarize for you what this doctrine actually teaches. And just to give you a little insight before we get started, I'm against it, okay? <laughs> now, hopefully you'll know that by the end here. But uh, this doctrine is often called the serpent seed, it's called the dual seed, or it's called the two seed line doctrine. Here's the basic teaching. It's a teaching which explains the biblical account of the fall, the fall of man, by saying that the sin of Eve was not disobedience, but it was sexual sin with the serpent. Okay, she had sex with the devil and Cain was the son that came out of it. Alright, now, Cain's descendants, according to this idea, are the sons of Satan. Now, here's the thing, and this is still, this line goes on today, you, you you might be thinking, well, that sounds a little bit like the whole, you know, divine counsel thing. You know, well, the difference being the divine counsel view comes out of Genesis 6, where it actually says that the gods came down, married women, had children, and the children were giants, Nephilim. There's nothing 
we're going to look at, you'll see in this text to indicate this here. These people believe that the seed of the devil is still around. Now, does anyone know who they say the seed of the devil is? It's this particular race. Okay? They say, Jews would say, they would say the Jews are the seed of Satan, or they would say blacks are the seed of Satan. Alright? So that's the races they pick. Or, if they particularly don't like a certain race, they'll pick on that one. Okay? But that's just, this why this doctrine so is upsetting, because it, it bolsters people's prejudice. It promotes their sin, because it says, it's okay for you to hate those people because they come from the devil. Alright? So it's just, uh, I don't want to give my total hand away before we get into this, but I'm against it. <laughs> okay? <laughs> now, the serpent seed doctrine is closely associated to other erroneous beliefs, such as Christian identity. I.O., Israel only, Christian identity, those things. And here's the interesting thing about Israel only or Christian identity. you got a group who's saying the only people that are really God's people are European whites. Okay? Then you got another group saying the only people that are really Christians are blacks. And so you're like, okay, one of them's got to be wrong, right? No, they're both wrong. Okay? It's got nothing to do with that anymore. Alright? Uh, it also um, is akin to the Canaanite doctrine, if you ever heard of that. Now, the serpent seed teaching was popularized by William Brenham. Probably most of you never heard of William Brenham. He lived from uh, 1909. He died in 1965. So, you probably don't know him. But he was an American preacher. He was a faith healer. And he initiated the post-World War II healing revival. Very big in this. He is said to have left a lasting impact on televangelism and the modern charismatic movement and is recognized as the principal architect of the restorationist thought for the charismatics by some Christian historians. So, he had an influence. At the time that his rallies, his campaigns were held, his interdenominational meetings were the largest religious meetings ever held in America. His ministry reached global audiences with major campaigns held in North America, Europe, Africa, and India. Now, Brenham claimed to have received an angelic visitation on May 7, 1946. Commissioning him, these angels came and they talked to him, and they commissioned him his worldwide ministry, and there he launched his campaigning career in, the, in about mid-1946. His fame spread pretty rapidly as crowds were drawn to his stories of angelic visitations. Everyone's coming, oh, tell us what these angels told you, you know. And also the reports of miracles that were supposedly happening at his meetings. By 1960, Brenham transitioned into a teaching ministry. The campaigning ministry was starting to die out, so he, translate, he transitioned into a, you could call it teaching, he was teaching, but wasn't too good stuff he was teaching. Now, many of his followers accepted his sermons as oral scripture. That should scare you. That should alert you. Okay, oral scripture. This guy is just preaching. You can tell when someone is talking about his teaching, even today. You know, I was looking at a couple churches that teach this doctrine, and they had stuff on there calling it the message. That's his teaching. That's what they call his teaching. It is the message. All right? 
1963, Brenham preached a sermon in which he indicated he was a prophet with the anointing of Elijah, who had come to herald Christ's second coming. Remember, he died in 65. So he still hadn't come, I guess, you know, because he was preaching that in 1965. His teaching continued to be promoted through the William Brenham Evangelistic Association, who reportedly, uh, in 2018, had two million people receive their material. So it's still going out. It's still, you know, a lot of people know who Brenham is. There are many churches in the country that, you know, preach his doctrine, that claim to, you know, be promoting the message. Here's a quote from Brenham. Here is what really happened in the Garden of Eden. In case you were wondering what really went on there, he's going to tell us. The word says that Eve was beguiled by the serpent. She was actually seduced by the serpent. He was so close to being human that his seed could and did mingle with that of the woman and cause her to conceive. When this happened, God cursed the serpent. Now, Brenham is not the first to preach this doctrine. We'll look at it a little bit later that, you know, we can see in the third century pretty much, uh, AD that there's some hints of this coming about. But he was one of its major proponents, especially in more modern times. Those who promote this doctrine say that the fall of man was not caused by disobedience, but by sexual sin between Eve and Satan. Now, let's look at the text of Scripture and see how much of this comes out of Scripture and how much comes out of the imagination of some very imaginative people. All right, let's start with Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So here we got the serpent carrying on a conversation with Eve. Now, we just went over this, but let me remind you again. The serpent here is from the Hebrew word nakash, all right, which according to Hebrew scholar Michael Heiser is most likely a triple entente, all right, which is a word or phrase that has three different meanings at once. The root nakash is from nun het shin, the Hebrew letters, which is the basis for a noun, a verb, and an adjective in Hebrew. If you take Nakash as pointing to the noun, the word here would mean serpent, as it's translated. That's a valid translation. But you got to keep in mind, serpent is not a member of the animal kingdom. It's not a snake. Okay? Have you ever wondered why so many of God's enemies are described in Scripture with serpent-like language? Think of Job's Leviathan, Revelation's dragon, Daniel's beast from the sea. Why is it a serpent that shows up in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve? Well, here's what we have to understand. The Bible uses all kinds of images to talk about spiritual forces of evil. It uses serpents, dragons, sea monsters, and other creatures of chaos. These are, we could say, chaos monsters that we see all throughout Scripture and not just scripture, but the A&E culture. A lot of the A&E writings talk about these chaos monsters. And the neat thing about the Bible, we see these chaos monsters, but we always see God victorious over these chaos monsters, smashing, squashing these chaos monsters. So serpent Nakash here in Genesis 3, 
He's a chaos monster. This serpent here is to disrupt, to cause chaos. The Bible uses chaos monster imagery all over the place to depict God's power over chaos and evil. Let's look at uh, just one scripture, Psalm 74. Yet God, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. People, the sea in the Bible is a picture of chaos. Okay, because the sea is scary. It's unknown. Even, I mean, we living here in Virginia Beach, we ought to understand that, right? How many times do we hear people dying because they went out to swim in the ocean and they got caught by an undertow and they got dragged out or they got bit by a shark? See, the sea is full of things that scare you and it's dangerous. You go out in the boat and a storm comes up and all of a sudden you're dead, you know? So chaos, the sea is a picture of chaos. All right, so here we have the chaos and he, he goes, uh, you broke the heads of the sea monsters. These monsters are in the sea because they're chaos monsters. And on the waters, you crush the heads of Leviathan. A lot of times in A&E culture, you'll see a seven-headed serpent. All right, and this is the idea. He crushed the heads, plural, Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. All right, so in Genesis 3, we have this nakash causing chaos. But in Genesis 3.15, we have a promise of a coming deliverer who will crush this chaos monster and restore man to God's presence. All right, let's go back to Nakash as a triple entendre. If you were to take the verb, it would mean deceiver or diviner. So Nakash could imply a deceiver. This option also fits the story. Now hang on to this meaning, because it's really important, I think, in refuting the serpent seed doctrine. So if you use Nakash as a verb, it means deceiver. All right? As an adjective, it would mean bronze or shining one. And in the text in Genesis, it's ha-nakash, the shining one. And luminosity is a characteristic of a divine being. You know, when you see angels in Scripture, you see all of a sudden there's this glow, there's this brightness. That's a divine being. You see that in the A&E text. Luminosity is not a characteristic of an animal or a man. So when you see that in Scripture, it's talking about a divine being. It's not a member of the animal kingdom. It's a member of God's divine counsel. Now, this watcher, this Nakash, he chose to oppose God's plan for humanity, I think, by prompting humans to disobey Yahweh so they would either be killed or removed from Yahweh's counsel and family because there was jealousy there. We, we've talked about that. All right, let's go on in the Genesis text. It says, And the woman said to the servant, So here she is having a conversation. Now, what's really dumb is you see these pictures of a snake on a tree, and she's talking to it. This is not a snake, okay? It's not a snake that she's talking to, but the woman's carrying on a conversation. She says to the serpent, oh, we can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in, that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. God knows the day you eat it, your eyes will be open." And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So Eve says, we're not allowed to eat from all the trees in the, or we're allowed to eat from all the trees in the garden except one. We just, that one tree we're not allowed to eat. Will you hang on to that thought? She could have ate, he could have ate from any tree in that garden except one. So the serpent tells Eve, you won't die. Just go ahead and eat it. And then verse six says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, 
that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now let me ask you some people, what just happened here? She's disobeying God. God said, don't do that. She does it. She took it and she ate. She ate of the forbidden fruit, whatever it was. We're not saying it's an apple. Everybody you know, makes it an apple. We don't know what it is, okay? Now here, this is where it gets into What we are told by those holding the serpent seed doctrine is that eating here of the fruit is a sexual sin. Huh? Okay, we're getting to that. That's exactly right. They say this is adultery on Eve's part. When it says she ate, it means she had sexual sin with the devil. Now, I hope you'd be thinking right about now, how on earth do they get that? How do you go from eating to sexual sin? Well, I'll show you in a little bit. All right, It gets more bizarre. Those who support the serpent seed idea cite many passages in the Bible as proof that their idea is correct. Almost without exception, these proofs require an interpretation that is totally inappropriate to the context of the passage. I mean, it's like they don't expect you to be thinking at all. Look at Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground, Yahweh God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Branham's view is that the tree of life in Genesis refers to Yeshua. Okay, Brenham writes this, if the tree of life is a person, then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a person also. It can't be otherwise. In other words, there's just no other, there's no other options, right? Really? Thus, the righteous one and the wicked one stood side by side there in the midst of the Garden of Eden. See, by arguing that Yeshua is the tree of life, Brenham then concludes that the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the serpent. Well, wait a minute. Is he a serpent or is he a tree? Maybe he's 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 playing a couple roles in this play. Yeah, yeah. This leads Brenham to conclude that the sin in the Garden of Eden involves sexual relations between Eve and Satan. Well... If Yeshua is the tree of life, then that would mean that after they had sex with Satan, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God stopped Adam and Eve from being able to have sex with Yeshua. Right? Because verse 22 says, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Isn't that interesting? How did he become like one of them? By having sex with the devil. Isn't that how you become like God? Right? That's what we're talking about. That's all you got to do is you have sex with the devil and you'll be like God. Where in the world? Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, can't eat that tree. Remember, they think that eat means have sex with. This would also mean that up until this point, it would have been perfectly okay to Adam to have had sex with Yeshua, as there was no forbidding from eating of this tree. In fact, Adam was told he could eat from any of the trees, every tree in the garden. He can... Oh, wait a minute, I forgot. The only trees that really aren't trees 
are Yeshua and the devil. And I'm like, wow, you just pick out... They're all trees, but these trees mean this and these trees don't mean that. Well, if that's true, what does Revelation 2.7 mean? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. With the serpent seed understanding, the way believers will obtain eternal life is by having sex with Yeshua. I don't even like saying that. Okay? It's creepy to even say it. Alright? Also, the doctrine would assert that Satan is being referenced, as I said, to both. He's the serpent, and he's the tree. Which is kind of crazy. That's to interpret the passage in such a way as to biasly support their doctrine. Oh yeah, he's the tree, but he's also the serpent. And he's talking to them, and he's saying, you can eat the tree, you can eat meat. What, what is he doing? I mean, what, who's... <sighs> So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a light to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. The plain words of the text should be sufficient to explain the meaning is not being a sexual act, but an act of disobedience to the command of eating from the one tree that God put off limits. What in this text tells us that eating the fruit is not a sexual sin? David already said it. What? Right. And she gave some to her husband who with her and he ate. What did she give him? Fruit, right? Where did the fruit come from? The tree of the knowledge. The same tree she ate of, now she's giving it to him. See, what they want to do with this verse is say, well, she had sex with the devil, then she had sex with Adam. That's not what it says. She gave him the same fruit that she just ate. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But some of the serpent seed doctrine teach that this is saying that Adam had sex with Eve. But again, that's not, it's not saying that. He's eating the same fruit she ate. So if one is going to say Eve is eating of the tree with sexual nature, then it needs to be applied to Adam as well. Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit of this tree. And if eating the fruit is a euphemism for sex, then God would have said that it's okay to have sex with all the trees in the garden. You can have them with any one of them. They're like, no. But see, no, no. They say, no, those are real trees. But there's something in your mind that distinguishes this is a real tree and this is a not a real tree. This is representing something else. I'm trying not to be too pejorative here, but it's hard. It's hard, you know. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Live it up, Adam. Eve's not even created yet. So he's fooling around before Eve comes on the scene. You know, he's going to have a good time with all these other trees before she's even created. <clears throat> People, <laughs> again, I'm sorry. I'm trying not to be too pejorative. I know that some people watching, I know that some of you out here hold this doctrine, Okay. But I just, believe me, I'm having a hard time, okay? Because you talk about eisegesis. This is it at its finest, okay? This is talking about eating from a fruit. The Bible makes it clear that the fall of man came from disobedience of eating the fruit that God told him not to eat. It had nothing to do with sex. All right, look at Romans 5.19. 
For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many were made righteous. So Adam's disobedience is contrasted with Christ's obedience. That's the issue. It's obedience to God's commands. See, something is not wrong unless God says it's wrong. You can do whatever you want unless God says it's wrong. That's what makes it a sin. God said, you can eat every tree you want. Have a, live it up. This one tree I don't want you to have. So what tree did they want? The one they couldn't have. Isn't that how we are? And so they disobeyed God and they fell. Now, God confronts the first couple after their sin, right? He comes to them and says, what happened here? Adam blames who? The woman you gave me. <laughs> he blamed Eve and he blamed God. You know, okay, God, it's your fault because you gave me this woman. I didn't ask for her. You know, you gave me her, it's your fault. Eve blames Satan. Okay? And Yahweh God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. Now, you notice this is the King James Version I'm quoting here. It says, The serpent beguiled me. The people who hold to the serpent seed doctrine love the King James Version. They love it. One guy, we were having an argument, and he goes, don't quote me any Bible verses unless they're King James. Like, oh, none of the other Bibles count. That shows you right there. There's a little bit of a problem here, okay? And here's why. They say, the serpent seed doctrine people say, the word beguiled here is synonymous with seduced. Well, context and scholarship disagree with that, okay? But this is one of the things they make up. Hey, beguiled here, that means seduced. Brenham explains this way. He says, he seduced her, Eve, and by her did Satan have a child vicariously. Cain bore the full spiritual characteristics of Satan and the animalistic, sensual, fleshly characteristics of the serpent. This view requires the interpreter to suggest that beguiled in this context actually means to sexually seduce. However, if you look at any of the contemporary translations, the Hebrew you know, this word here, beguiled, is translated deceived or tricked. Most any of the new, newer translations. None of these translations render the word as seduced or imply anything, you know, of that idea. Uh, look at the ESV. It says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. King James says beguiled. And again, they're, they're taken beguiled. The Hebrew word If we look at this in the Hebrew, the serpent there, same word we saw in Genesis 3.1, nachash. Okay? The Hebrew word for deceive here is nasha. So the nachash, nasha. Deceiver, deceived. That's the Hebrew. Alright? I think it's really clear. Deceiver, deceived. Nasha means, they'll, they want to try to tell you that it means to sexually seduce. All the seed line teachers want to claim that. Well, if that is true, okay, then in 2 Kings 18.29, Rabshakin was warning the inhabitants of Jerusalem not to let King Hezekiah sexually seduce them. Thus says the king, 
Do not let Hezekiah nashah you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Makes no sense, okay? 2 Kings 19.10, Rabshakin is warning Hezekiah, lest he be sexually seduced by Yahweh. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, nashah you, deceive you, sexually seduce you. It doesn't fit. Jeremiah 4.10, Jeremiah was accusing Yahweh of sexually seducing the descendants of the house of Judah. Then I said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, surely you have utterly deceived nashah, this people. Again, Jeremiah 29.8, Yahweh was warning the remnant of Judah about sexual seduction by the prophets. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive, nashah you. Jeremiah 37.9, Yahweh is warning King Zedekiah and the remnant of Judah not to sexually seduce themselves. Thus says Yahweh, do not nashah yourselves. So the whole argument is based on the word nashah, and is made up. They've taken the word, say, this word means this. It doesn't mean that. Eve is blaming the serpent for deceiving her, for tricking her into disobeying God. She's not stating that he seduced her. That's not there. You're not going to find it in the context. You're not going to find it in the language. Okay? Now, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Another problem with the serpent seed view is the Hebrew word ate here is achal. And it's consistently used for, guess what? Eating. That's crazy. Physically eating. It's not used for sex, all right? So you might ask, well, how do they turn eating into having sex? Good question. I'm glad you asked, okay? To support their view... They will go to verses like this. This is one of their favorite verses, Proverbs 30, 20. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats, wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. So they say, see that? Adulteress and eats. They're making, that's what it is. Listen, this is not saying that eating is a metaphor for adultery. The idea here is just like someone eats something they shouldn't be eating, they wipe their mouth to appear that they didn't eat anything. All right? The adulteress commits sexual sin and then acts like she didn't do anything wrong. She hides the evidence of her shame and professes innocence. This is greatly overstated by the serpent seed believers as a proof text for their wrong doctrine. And it's not even saying what they think it's saying. But you got the word adultery and eat in the same sentence, so it's like, oh yeah, there you go. That proves our point. No, it really doesn't. Okay? The word ate from achal simply means to eat. This word and its derivatives are used 810 times in the Hebrew text. Let me just show you a few of them, okay? But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. Now, figure out what that's saying there, okay? If we apply the understanding to eat here as a euphemism for sex, then what we have is God informing the Hebrews that they can't have sex with anything that has blood in it. <laughs> okay, how's that sound to you? Okay. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Hebrews must not have sexual intercourse with leavened bread. Only unleavened bread. Okay. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. 
All right, now here's why I bring these two up, these two last verses. The exact wording in Hebrew is used in both of these verses, the same thing as in chapter 3. And so we have to ask, is the word a, a euphemism in Genesis 3, but in 9 and 12 it's not? And it's used the exact same wording. Well, you say, it could be the context is different. That's right. Context always gives us the answer as to why a word is used to mean something. However, for this word to mean a sexual act in Genesis 3 and not in the rest of its uses in the Bible, in context, would have to dictate the different application. But in order to make it do that, you have to already believe that it's in fact a euphemism for a sexual act and then you have to read that into the text and then read it back out of the text. It's circular reasoning and it simply fails. It's, again, it's eisegesis. Exegesis is drawing out of the Bible what's in there. Eisegesis is reading something that's not in there at all. Okay? 3.15 But I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. This is actually where they get the name of their doctrine. Serpent seed doctrine because there's a serpent here. He has a seed. You know, offspring is, in the King James, it says seed. It's talking about offspring, okay? So the King James says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman between thy seed and her seed. So the serpent seed doctrine, they come from this, and they say both seeds are literal. And they attempt to show that Satan has a physical seed, just like the woman does. But if we use just a little bit of logic, this interpretation completely falls apart. The Bible doesn't state that the enmity would be put between Satan's seed and Adam's seed, but between Satan's seed and the woman's seed. You see the problem already? If Satan did, in fact, produce his seed through Eve, then that seed would also be the seed of Eve. The woman, so her seed, would, in fact, be both Satan's and Adam's. And I'll show you some things later that they think that's true. They think there was twins. She had twins. This would make God's statement that God would put enmity between her seed and her seed. That's what he'd be saying. Because their seed that comes from, they're coming from Eve. This makes completely illogical argument that God is putting enmity between her physical seed and her physical seed. This is not the distinction God is making here. All right. I want to go to Genesis 4.1 because to me this is, the, this is the verse that just shuts it down or should shut it down and shut them up forever because here's what the Bible actually says. You don't have to make it, oh, it means this and that means this and also over here is that. No. Adam knew Eve. Okay? New is a euphemism. Okay? Eating an apple, eating fruit is not a euphemism for sex, but new is. Adam knew his wife Eve. And she conceived and bore Cain. That, to me, should be the death of the serpent seed doctrine. It clearly shows us that Cain is the son of Adam and not the devil. She bare Cain. Cain then would seem to be the result of Adam knowing his wife, not from a sexual act with Satan. Eve declares, I have gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now, that doesn't sound like a proclamation of someone who's pregnant from the devil, does it? No. All right, but hang on, because, you know, they got to deal with this, right? Those who hold the serpent seed doctrine would take us to Genesis 5.3. 
When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And from this verse, they see, you can see there how it can't be, he can't be the father of Cain, right? Can you understand that? No, you can't see it? Oh. <laughs> well, they would argue, well, see, 5.3 says that Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. But those phrases aren't used of Cain in 4.1. Therefore, Cain's not the son of Adam. Good logic, isn't it? No, it's horrible logic. doesn't make any sense. And if you go to Genesis 4.25, it wipes out the 5.3 argument that's basis for 4.1's argument. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. And she said, for God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain Killed him. We don't have this image language in Genesis 4.25, and we don't need it. Verse 25 connects back to verse 1. So Adam is the father of both Cain and Seth, and this language in 5.3 doesn't telegraph us anything different. Now, the view that Cain was the offspring of Satan focuses on some really unusual things everywhere it goes, but it does... A lot of damage with this verse here in 4.1. Uh, Genesis 4.1, and there's a targum on 4.1 that they really hold to as doctrine. But let's look at the last part of this, because this is really difficult in the Hebrew. It says, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Now, let me see if I can explain to you what's going on here. Right before the word Yahweh is a two-letter particle called the Aleph Tav, the et, which usually marks a direct object. But it can also be a preposition. So, if it was a direct object, the olive tov would be this. I have created a man, Yahweh. That's what the text literally says. Gotten is not a good translation. The Hebrew word it uses here really has the idea of created. I've created a man, Yahweh. Now, Scholars look at that and say, ah, that can't be right. What is she saying here? I mean, she didn't create, Yahweh's not created. She certainly didn't create him, so what's going on here? All right, so they say, well, we have to take the olive tav here as a preposition, which would be this, I have created a man with Yahweh. Oh, that's, I guess, a little better, right? The English in the ESV, the word help, there's no Hebrew equivalent to that in the text. The, the translators add words like this to help you, help us, you know, figure things out. I've got a man with the help of Yahweh, all right? Uh, but that's not there. It just says, I've created a man, Yahweh. Now, in his book, Outside of Eden, Cain and the Ancient Version of Genesis 4, 1 through 6, M.W. Scarlata writes this. If the Aleph Tav is taken as a predicate accusative, the sentence could be translated, I have acquired or created a man who is Yahweh. Alright, so that's what the text says. Now watch what he says. Which could signify that Eve believed she had given birth to the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. I can see that. I mean, that, that's a possible translation. He said that was actually Martin Luther's view. Okay, that's what he believed. You know, I've gotten a man, Yahweh. In other words, this is the fulfillment of the promise that a man's going to come and fix this. She thought she had given birth to Yahweh. All right? 
Maybe because of the difficulty of the Hebrew, or maybe because the translator was smoking something, we have some very strange translations of this verse in the Targums. Now, Targums are Aramaic translations from the Hebrew. We t- they take the Hebrew, we're translating them into Aramaic, they're called Targums. All right. Now, there's a Targum called Pseudo-Jonathan that has a reading for Genesis 4.1. And here's how that Targum reads. Adam knew his wife, this is 4.1 and 2, Adam knew his wife Eve, who had conceived from Samael, the angel of Yahweh. Then, from Adam, her husband, she bore his twin sister, Abel. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a man tilling the earth. Okay? Samael. That's, again, this is Genesis 4, 1 and 2 in Clark's edition of the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. Now, if you compare that with the Hebrew text, you see the stuff. Now, notice he says Semael, and then he says the angel of Yahweh, because the original text says of Yahweh, so they're changing it to the angel of Yahweh, but then they're telling you who the angel is, is Semael. You know who Semael is? He's a Satan figure. Okay? So we compare these texts. It says, and the ESV says, now Adam knew Eve, and that starts there. Adam knew his wife Eve. All right, so the first part, we got it okay. She conceived and bore Cain. And then it says, had conceived from Samael, the angel of Yahweh. This is verse 1, and, and they're both in verse 1. And then she says, I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. Eve's exclamation here isn't even in the verse. He just totally took that out. And the translator, or I should say in this case, the fabricator, inserts his own words. This is not a translation at all. This is totally made up. He's got the Hebrew. He's reading it. It's difficult. I have created a man, Yahweh. Hmm, Yahweh. Well, can't be Yahweh. Let's make it Samael. Let's say angel of the Lord. Let's just stick that stuff in there. All right, Samael's a Satan figure known from the pseudepigraphal text, like the ascension of Isaiah or the martyrdom of Isaiah. Samael is a Satan figure and the writer just sticks it in there. For no apparent reason. There's a complete absence in Genesis 4, 1 or any other passage that Cain was fathered by Satan. The idea is just not present in the Bible. It's eisegesis. But here's what happened. You're, you're, you read Aramaic and so you got, you get your Bible and you're sitting down, you're reading and you get to 4, 1 and it's like, oh my word, Samael, you got a new doctrine form. They don't, you know, most people reading this, they don't have the Hebrew to translate or couldn't translate, so they just believe the text. This is why, people, you have to use many different translations when you're studying the Bible. And try to figure out, because translators still do this, okay? Maybe not as drastic, hopefully, because it would they'd be caught today, alright? But they're still giving you their own opinion, and they're translating some things that they shouldn't, because this is what they believe. So that's no longer a translation, that's an interpretation. But this is what happened with this, and this gives fuel to the fire. So you could go back, you know, and find this and say, ha, ah, pseudo-Jonathan, and now this comes from like the 7th or 8th century A.D. So this is kind of old, alright? This Targum is just one of the many ancient texts that have the idea that Cain being the serpent's offspring. We find this teaching in the Zohar, which is a Jewish mystical book that has alternate explanations of the Bible. Much of it is done from a non-biblical interpretation. It's very mystical interpretation. All right, 
The Zohar Bereshis 36b says this, When they begat children, the firstborn was the son of the serpent slime. For two beings had intercourse with Eve, and she conceived from both and bore two children. See, she had twins, but from two different dads. See what that text is saying? You're scratching your head. I know, don't. I get you. All right. Eve had conceived from both and bore two children. Each followed one of the male parents, and their spirits parted one to this side and one to the other, and similar their characteristics. In other words, this is just mystic stuff that has nothing to do with the Scripture. Rabbi David Max Eckhorn traces the idea back through the early Jewish Midrashic text in his book, Cain, Son of the Serpent. He identifies rabbis who taught that Cain was the son of the union between the serpent and Eve. One of the Gnostic Gospels from the 3rd century, the Gospel of Philip. Now, we talk about pseudepigrapha. Old Testament pseudepigrapha is very helpful. New Testament pseudepigrapha is mostly whacked. Okay? Alright? So this is from the 3rd century, A.D. This is New Testament stuff. Gospel of Philip says, First adultery came into being, afterwards murder. And he was begotten in adultery, for he was the child of the serpent. So he became a murderer, just like his father, and he killed his brother. Indeed, every act of sexual intercourse which has occurred between those unlike one another is adultery. (laughs) I guess that means between humans and divine beings, you know? (laughs) All right, so this idea, this serpent seed idea appears, the earliest we can find anything is the third century. All right, now, the Tanakh pretty much was done being composed. Uh, so this is, there's about 800 years difference here. So for 800 years, nobody had this idea. Nobody saw this in the Tanakh text until 800 years later, and these guys start coming up with these strange ideas. Um, a 9th century book uh, called Perk the Rabbi Eleazar, who in Genesis 1 identifies the serpent with Samael, who was the archangel in Talmudic writings, an accuser, a seducer, a destroyer. So, again, this stuff doesn't come up till later. This teaching, as I said earlier, and listen, this is, I gave you the gist of what they believe, okay? And, I, and to me, like I said, unless I'm absolutely missing something, there's not a shred of anything from the text. I mean, you pull stuff and you get a good enough imagination. If you want to believe this, yeah, I guess you can find it different places, okay, by stretching things. But this teaching is not just wrong, it's destructive, okay? Because it leads directly and logically to racism. Because like I said, the people who believe this, the seed of Satan is still out there. It's a certain race of people. Depending on who believes it, they have different ideas on who that race is. The only possible outcome of such a worldview, in my opinion, is prejudice and bigotry. The Aryan nation, you know who the Aryan nation is, right? You all familiar with that? Their website says this, We believe that there are literally children of Satan in the world today. These children are the descendants of Cain, who was the result of Eve's original sin, her physical seduction by Satan. Oh, look at that. The Aryan nation believes in the serpent seed doctrine. Why? Because they want to hate a group of people. 
And now they can because they're not really humans. They're the seed of Satan. And see, that can fuel your hatred. And that can justify your hatred. Racism and bigotry are sin. That's the serpent seed teaching and it leads to both of these things. Paul teaches there is no difference between ethnicities, between races. He says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, Okay, so Jews and Greeks disappeared? He says there's neither slave nor free. There's no more slaves, there's no more free people. There's no male or female. Oh, that sounds like today's teaching. <laughs> you know, all kinds of these dip. No, you know, no, that's not what it's saying. Listen, it's saying in Christ, none of these things make any difference. If you're in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile. You both have the same access to God. It doesn't matter if you're a slave or free. You both have the same access to God. It doesn't matter if you're a female or a male. You both have the same exact access to God through Christ. That's what he's saying here. You know, and we have to understand that the Jews and the Greeks back then, they hated one another. We see this in uh, John 4, where the Samaritans were actually half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Greek. So they were hated for being half-breeds. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaria. Alright? Now, what's interesting here, the Greek word used for dealings is sunkratomai. Alright? And sunkratomai means use the same objects or utensils. Hey, you guys don't use the same object or utensils that we do. You don't drink out of the same cups we do. They didn't use the same, or not, or they don't use anything together with the Samaritans. They don't use the same thing. See, they don't drink out of the same cup. It's very specific. It's not saying you have no dealings with the Samaritans. Because what was happening while this conversation was going on? The disciples were out getting food from the Samaritans. They were having dealings with the Samaritans. Well, so that's, he's not saying they don't have dealings. He's saying, She's saying, we don't use the same utensils as you guys do. What are you talking about? This woman is saying, I know your culture. I know what you think about us. And Yeshua shattered that because it was a non-biblical tradition. That kind of hatred toward the Samaritans that came from the Jews was wrong. And he was telling them it's wrong. Paul writes, when we are in Yeshua, there's no Jew or Greek. Paul makes the same point in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, but now in Christ Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one. One. The Jews and the Gentiles who desperately hated each other. He said, you're one now. And you come to the church and it's not you're on this side and that on that. You get together because that stuff is done in Christ. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create in himself one new man. In place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, in Christ, Jew and Gentile are one. God is not a respecter of persons. In Christ, all believers, I don't care what color, what nationality, you're on the same exact ground. Heaven is described in Revelation as people from every nation, tribe, and languages 
worshiping God together. Revelation 7, 9, and 10. We're going to sing about this in a minute when I'm done. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and peoples and languages. This is heaven. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. So, if you hold to a serpent seed doctrine and you're hating a group of people, you might not be too happy in heaven. You might not like it because there's going to be people there you don't like. Okay? But God loves. All who believe in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a sad thing when people use the Bible to support their sin of prejudice. This serpent seed doctrine, in my opinion, is a sick, twisted teaching that distorts the Word of God. And when you're using the Bible to support your sin, I just think that's sick. The devil's children are not a physical people. They are those who do not believe in Christ. No matter what race they are from. And we'll get into that as we get into this text. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the opportunity to look at this. Lord, I'm maybe it was a little over the top today. I just It just makes me sick, Father. It really does. I pray, though, that uh, the people who hear this message would truly examine it based on the Scripture. Look at these texts. Is this what these texts are saying or is it not what they're saying? Help us, Lord, to Truly have the heart of Brian to put our prejudices, our own ideas aside and let you speak. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your love for us. Amen. Okay, questions. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly it. It's like, yeah, people, when you're going to hold a view, you got to find a verse to fit it so you can justify what you're doing. And people try to do that. And in, in this case, you got to really, you know, twist some things around, you know, to make it happen. Um, <laughs> all right, Mike Sullivan writes, although I do not hold to this serpent seed doctrine, I'm not sure what eating a physical fruit has to do with being ashamed and aware of nakedness as being bad in its connection to the sin and in the Song of Solomon. All right, that, that's a good question, Mike. And the Serpent Seed Doctrine used that. They say the reason it was sexual sin is because she covered up afterwards. Well, God said you're going to know good and evil when you disobey. They disobeyed. God gave them enlightenment and they felt like, okay, now I'm naked before God. It didn't bother them before. But now... Because they ate of that tree, they have a knowledge of good and evil, which there wasn't before that. And now they feel this is wrong to be naked like this. So God clothes them with skins. So yeah, they will use that in context. And I, I don't, you know, I don't get what that's saying. I don't get how, here's what I really don't get. And I said it earlier. I don't get how having sex with the devil gives you enlightenment. Now you're like God. 
That's what they're basically saying. Because God said, when you eat it, their eyes will be open and they'll good and evil. Sure doesn't fit with sexual sin. <laughs> and, you know, when only one person said they were familiar with it, I felt like... I don't even want to, I don't want to corrupt your minds with this, but I think you need to know because you'll hear this. You'll run across people, I'll tell you. Alright, there's a, there's people pushing this. But when you started off and you were talking about, um, having sex with the devil, you know, I mean, that And that's why I say, you know, you hear, okay, you got a divine being, you know, mating with a, a whole human. Well, we got that. We understand that. That's Genesis 6. But Genesis 6 teaches that. And Genesis 6 teaches that the offspring of this hybrid race, okay, the, you got a divine being, you got a human, and their offspring are hybrid and they're giants. Nephilim is a giant. So, I mean, it's easy to tell, hey, that's the offspring of, that's a Nephilim there, okay? Well, they're saying, well, these people are all among us, seed of Satan, but they, you know, some of them will say, well, they do look different because they're dark, they're black, you know, okay, that's how we know. You know, and others will say, no, they're Jews. They say the Jews are the seed of Satan. And I don't know really how you distinguish them unless by their name or what, I don't know how you do that, but, you know, they want to pick somebody out. But listen, with the Nephilim, God put an end to that, okay? Called the flood, first of all, that didn't wipe them all out. Now, what, why... I think there was a second incursion. That's my opinion. But we had Nephilim after the flood, but God did wipe them out through the conquest and through David and his mighty men. They went in and wiped out all these giants. Okay? Destroyed them. So there is no Nephilim anymore. Okay? But to them, they're saying, well, these people are still among us. Seed of Satan. And and you can understand, if you think someone is a literal child of Satan, you don't got to be nice to them, right? (laughs) Be mean as you want. Yeah, physically still among us. Okay, they would say if you know you're if you're a Jew, if you're black, you know. And again, it depends on what group. Okay, because they, they pick out different races that they don't like, you know, and they would see you know this. You know, for us, it's it's funny because you know for us maybe black and white or whatever, but you know from Colombia, you know who do the Colombians are prejudiced against? Anybody know? Huh? Mexicans. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, Mexicans and Colombia, I'm like, well, you all speak the same language. Don't you? No, we don't speak the same. You know, <laughs> they both speak Spanish, but different Spanish, I guess. So, but it's just funny. Yeah, everybody has somebody they don't like. And for dumb reasons. And you want to try to justify it for some reason or another, but it's crazy. So I'm sorry to have to put this in your head, but because in verse 12 we're getting to that, you know, I don't want to, you know, that is a verse they use to support their doctrine. All right, Cain was of the devil. He was of the devil. He acted like his spiritual daddy. Not that he was a physical offspring of him. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about that in context next week. Gary? Well, that would fall into deception, wouldn't it? 
Yeah. Well, you know, and Strong's uses that based on the King James translation, how they translate it, but it's not translated that way anywhere else. No, I mean, that's only like, and that's even a minor Right. 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 Lift up. Well, that'd be deception. You're, he's making you believe something it's not true that you're lifted up. Well, again, in the Hebrew, it's nakash, nakal. Deceiver deceived. The deceiver deceived you. And that's why I said, in the triple entendre of nakash, one of them is a deceiver. And I think that's what we see in the text. Here's the deceiver. He's deceiving. It's almost the same Hebrew word. Trying to make that clear. All right, we done? This nonsense? 